Today we're continuing a series that we're calling Roadblocks Moving Forward. We've said that we often refer to this idea of following Jesus as a journey. Some people refer to it as walking with Jesus. You may have heard people call it their Christian walk. We use words like faith journey. And I think all those terms are fine and pretty accurately describe the experience of following Jesus. And since in following Jesus, we're moving in a direction. Like, we're following Jesus. Like, it stands to reason then that there's a path that we can follow, that there's a road that we can walk on. And perhaps while walking on that road, Jesus would sometimes walk ahead of us. Sometimes we can see him clearly up ahead. Sometimes he's up and just around the corner. We can't quite see him right at the moment. Sometimes, and perhaps you've experienced this, it gets a little bit foggy. We're pretty sure he's still up there. We can hear his voice, but things aren't as clear as they have been in the past when the sun is shining. Maybe you've been there. And sometimes, this is a beautiful thing, Jesus slows the pace and just settles in next to us and walks with us. So in following this analogy all the way through, then it's clear at some points along the way we are going to encounter some roadblocks. Some roadblocks that can slow our progress, that might even result in a little distance between us and Jesus. Sometimes those roadblocks are of our own making. Sometimes they're the fallout of someone else's choices, but the result is the same. So we're talking about some of the roadblocks uh, that we might encounter even as we're following Jesus, as we're trying to be faithful in our following. And no matter where you find yourself in your journey as a follower, follower of Jesus, whether you've just started the journey or whether you're deep into it, you've probably experienced some roadblocks, some experiences, some spiritual and emotional and relational challenges that slow your progress and maybe have even created distance between you and God. Roadblocks can bring our pursuit of spiritual and emotional health and wholeness and spiritual maturity to a standstill. So whether you're here with us in person this morning or joining us at church online or watching on demand or listening on the podcast, thank you for being with us this morning. Our hope is that by digging into some of these topics as we have over the last few weeks and will for the next few, that we can begin to acknowledge and address some of the roadblocks and ultimately begin to move forward to regain maybe some of our spiritual momentum to keep moving forward as we follow Jesus. And for the most part, as we tackle these topics, we're using the format of here's the roadblock, let's talk about what that looks like, what kind of impact that has on our journey with Jesus, and then what will it take to move around this roadblock and to move forward as we walk with him. So as a guardrail for this series, we're leaning into the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, verse 25, where he said, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Here's Amanda with today's message. To begin, picture this scene with me. She looks down at the ground, her eyes unable to meet the eyes of the other. Fear courses through her body, the shame because of what she has done and the lies she believes about herself paralyze her. The secret crushes down on her soul like a heavy weight she could no longer bear. The enemy shouts in her ear, hide, run, lie. They will never love you if they find out. But then she heard a still small voice saying, look up. In one brave moment, desperation really, she looks up and meets the eyes of the other, ready for the worst, the judgment, the disgust, the shame. She braced herself. But what she saw in the, eyes of the, in the other's eyes 
was not something that she could have possibly imagined. Grace, love, acceptance. The shame was melting. She was free. If you have ever felt the desperation described in that moment, then you know the feeling of shame. Shame. We have all experienced it in some ways, and maybe we know what it feels like. Yet at the same time, it is harder to ex hard to explain and even harder to feel. Shame is a trap, a prison for our souls. The further our hearts have held on to the lies of shame, the more we begin to see ourselves and the world through that lens. Author Brene Brown describes shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Because shame can be so painful to bear, we often try to hide and run for that, from that feeling, pushing it down deep inside. The problem with, with the hiding is that we are missing an opportunity to see God's mercy, hope, and freedom in our deepest areas of pain. The first time we see an example of the word shame in the Bible goes way back to the beginning of time. In Genesis, the first book in the Old Testament, we find the account of creation and how God created mankind in his own image. Being made in the image of someone means to bear witness or to honor the one we represent. Mankind was made to glorify God and enjoy a relationship with him forever. Adam and Eve, the first humans on earth, walked in a perfect, loving relationship with God and each other. They were given one rule to follow. Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but there was still no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The Genesis passage shows us that God's one standard for Adam and Eve to keep was to not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet, Adam and Eve chose to disobey. At that time, sin, along with shame, entered the world. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? 
The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Here in this passage, we see the first example of shame emerge. Adam and Eve felt the need to hide from God. Because, because of what they have done, they could no longer walk in innocence with God or one another. But God, in his mercy and grace, provided a way for the shame of Adam and Eve to be covered temporarily with garments that he made for them. Verse 21, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. While the garments temporarily covered the shame of Adam and Eve's nakedness, God's plan of sending his son Jesus to be the savior and redeemer from sin and shame begins to unfold. God is omnipotent, which means that he knows everything. Everything. He is not bound to the constraints of time as we are. He already knew that Adam and Eve were going to make that choice, and in his love and mercy, he had a way to set them free from the burden of sin. The word sin comes from the Hebrew word kata, which means to miss the mark, a failure to fulfill a goal. As we saw in the earlier passage, mankind was created in the image of God. Therefore, sin is not treating God and others with the honor they deserve. The producers of the Bible Project, a nonprofit organization aimed at making the Bible accessible to all, defined sin as the failure to be truly human. Sin is more than just doing bad things. It describes how easily we deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses the Greek word hamartia to describe sin as a power or force that rules humans, that can be enslaving, and that drives our selfish choices and behavior. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. We have all done bad things in our lives and are guilty of sin against God. We are in need of his grace and forgiveness. Shame takes those, bad, those wrongdoings and convinces us that we are unlovable or unworthy. As humans, we bear the image of God. We have worth because of the fact that God created us and chose to set his love upon us. We do nothing to earn that love, but we can receive it. We are all affected by sin from our own choices and the choices of others. Other sin can cause us deep shame by making us believe that the, sin's done to, the sin was done to us because there is something wrong with us or something we could have done to prevent the sin from harming us. Sin can show up in the form of abuse from others. In the book Unashamed, author Christine Kane describes a young girl who witnesses abuse between her parents while she was hiding behind a chair. The young child had done nothing wrong, yet what she was experiencing was shame, causing her to hide and think there was something innately wrong with her. As a mental health therapist, I have witnessed the same thing with children who don't want to be seen when talking about difficult life experiences. Children who feel deep shame over what has been done to them or who they believe that they are. Children who cover their eyes, hide under blankets, behind chairs, or bolt from rooms when the feelings become too overwhelming. As adults, we tend to have the same responses to shame. We run, hide, bury it deep inside. We may not be able to crawl behind a chair at our workplace, but instead we hide behind our successes, smiles, hobbies, or even spirituality or good works. We numb the pain with substances, and we fill the ache with achievements or distractions. Christine Kane goes on to ask the question, 
Why is it that the one sinned against feels such shame? Because sin, when unleashed, is so insidious, it is such a violation of how we were created to live that it often leaves the perpetrator, the victim, and even the witnesses feeling stained. We were not created for such ugly acts, not to have them done to us, not to witness them. We were created to forever enjoy the good gifts of a loving father. When exposed to a violation of God's intention, we feel violated, soiled to the core of our being. Then shame wraps its deceitful tendrils around our hearts and whispers such lies as, I'm unlovely, unlovable, worthless, repelling, ugly, horrid, loathsome, offensive, and the list goes on. As painful as the shame we feel is, God has broken the power of shame. God, in his love, has made a way to set you free from shame and free to a close and intimate relationship with him. God sees you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you. He has created you in his image. He has made you unique, unlike any other human being on the planet. He wants you to come out of hiding and live in unconditional love and acceptance. Will you look up and see his eyes of love looking at you? Now that we have a basic overview of what shame is and where it comes from and how Jesus made a way to set us, set us free, it's time to ask ourselves two important questions. Whose am I? Who am I? John 1.10 states, He, Jesus, came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Through believing in God's death being the payment for our sin and his power to defeat sin and death through his resurrection, God made a way for us to be brought close to him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 14 to 17, For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful, slave, fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are heirs of God. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share his suffering. In the parable told by Jesus of the prodigal son, Jesus shows us what kind of father God is, one who is full of love and ready to embrace his children, no matter where they have been or what they have done. In the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey tells a modernized version of the prodigal son story. My friend Ginger is going to share that story with us now. As we listen, let's reflect on the thoughts that the girl has about who she is and how the father showed his true character. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just north of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. 
because newspapers in Traverse City report in vivid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that this is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California maybe, Florida even perhaps, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the nicest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, and arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the nice car she calls him boss teaches her a few things that men like. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. And occasionally, she thinks about her parents back home. But that small town life now seems so close-minded and boring, she can hardly believe that she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture on a missing poster with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and tattoos, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways too, and nobody snitches in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street. No money, no phone, nowhere to go. So she does what she knows, and she sells her body. But it doesn't pay much, and what she does, what she does make goes to support her meth habit. And when the cold winter nights arrive, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside the big department store. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never really relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes, and her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the cardboard she's piled on top of her coat. Then suddenly, a memory. A single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once, with her golden retriever dashing through rows and rows of blossom-laden trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back at home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in an instant that more than anything else in the world, she just wants to go home. Three back-to-back -back phone calls, three straight connections with voicemail. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it gets to Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, 
And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them more time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between these worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you ever forgive me? She says these words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anybody in years. Buried in her thoughts, she hadn't noticed the sun had set hours ago. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks her reflection in the bus window, smooths her hair, and rubs some lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a handwritten banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers, her dad emerges. She stares out through tears quivering in her eyes and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her, hush child. We've got no time for that, no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A bakewins waiting for you at home. As you reflect on the father in the story, I want you to think about Jesus opening his arms wide and celebrating your return to those arms. He is not ashamed of you. He is eager to welcome you into his family. He has done all the work for you to be a part of his family. All that is left is for you to accept the invitation. The next way to overcome the roadblock of shame is to truly understand who you are, your identity as a child of God. In the book of Ephesians, a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesians, which is modern-day Turkey, Paul writes this, Ephesians 1, 1 1-6. Dear friends, my name is Paul, and I was chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus, the Messiah. I'm writing this letter to all the devoted believers who have been made holy by being one with Jesus, the Anointed One. May God himself, the Heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, release grace over you and impart total well-being into your life. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from the wonderful Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus, all because he sees us 
wrapped into Christ. This is why we, were, we celebrate him with all of our hearts. And in love he chose us before he laid the foundations of the universe. Because of his great love, he ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with unstained innocence. For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children through our union with Jesus, the anointed one, so that the tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. For the same love he has for the beloved Jesus, he has for us. Let's let that sink in for a second. For the same love that he has for the beloved Jesus, he has for us. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. When we are children of God, we are given a new identity. The things that used to define us no longer do. It's who God says we are that matters. It can be difficult to accept this new identity without allowing the shame of the past to weigh us down. Accepting the identity gives us freedom to lay down the shame and to walk into what God has for us. In the movie Overcomer, a young girl who is grappling with her past in a transition to the new school is given the challenge to read scripture to find out who God says she is. In the following movie clip, you will see the answer she comes up with when her track and field coach asks her the question, who is Hannah Scott? Hannah, you okay? Ask me who I am. Ask me who I am. Who is Hannah Scott? I am created by God. He designed me. So I'm not a mistake. His son died for me. Just so I could be forgiven. He picked me to be his own, so I'm chosen. He redeemed me, so I am wanted. He showed me grace just so I could be saved. He has a future for me because he loves me. So I don't wonder anymore, Coach Harrison. I am a child of God. I just wanted you to know. As a child of God, Hannah decided to no longer let shame define her and found out who she was in Christ. As God's children, we are given new titles and positions in him. Um, now, if you could take a look at the handout that we passed out earlier, on it you will find a reflection exercise. I want to give you the same challenge the movie provides the young girl. Take some time throughout this week to examine for yourself what the Bible says about you in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Once you know who you are and who you are, you can confront the roadblock of shame with God's the roadblock of shame with God's power and perspective. He loves you and he has set you free. 
As we wrap up today, we're going to play a song. As we do, I want you to take a moment to ask yourselves the following two questions. Number one, am I a child of God? Number two, as a child of God, how is the knowledge of God's love, grace, and mercy towards me allowing shame to be disrupted and shame to be disrupted and God's truth to set me free? This is Because of Mercy by Casting Crowns. I could stand here and try to tell you I found my way here on my own Brought to life this heart of stone Made up my own mind To change my own life Working my own way to good As if anybody could But the truth is I've been broken Since my very first breath And the truth is I've been wandering Since my very first day Because I'm worthy, it's all because of mercy. There's no way that I could earn it. Praise God, my debt is paid. It's not because I'm worthy, it's all because of mercy.
When we accept Jesus' mercy, we can stand in the light unashamed. There is absolutely nothing you have done or ever will do that will separate you from God's love. God created you, all of you. He imagined and planned you before the foundations of the world to be uniquely you, unlike anyone else. He wanted you here on the earth for a purpose. In Psalms 139, King David writes, I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it. How thoroughly you know me, Lord. You formed every bone in my body when you created me in the secret place. Carefully, skillfully, you shaped me from nothing into something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Every single moment you were thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your thoughts. Oh God, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. God does not just tolerate you. He loves you so much more than you can possibly imagine. There is no catch to his love. There is no shame too dark or too deep for him to set you free. At the end of our lives, we will all stand before God the Father to be judged. There is no amount of bad that you can do that will disqualify you from his love. But there is also no amount of good works that you can do that will earn your way into heaven. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through accepting God's invitation to forgive you of your sins and give you the right standing that Jesus has before his Father. In the book of Hebrews 7, verse 25, we read, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save us to the uttermost, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. The phrase here, to the, to the uttermost, is one Greek word, pantalos. It means comprehensive, completeness, exhaustive wholeness. There is absolutely nothing in your life that you have done thought, or believed that can disqualify you from God's love, and you do not have to live under the burden of shame any longer. At the very beginning of this message, I described a woman who was set free from shame. That woman was me. It wasn't until I was around 19 years old that I thought I had done something so bad, so shameful, that God could not set me free from that sin. Oh, I knew I had done a lot of bad things by then, but for some reason I thought God could forgive me of those sins. But, one in the mo- in, but in one of the most difficult seasons in my life, I came face to face with shame. It crushed me to the point of being completely desperate for help and so, so very afraid. God used a group of people to look me in the eye and tell me about his love. What I saw in their face was grace and mercy. There was no judgment. If you are stuck in shame today, please know that it is not God that is holding you there. We face a real enemy of our souls who chooses to use shame as one of his weapons to keep us in captivity. I believe with all my heart that God loves you and wants to set you free today. We are going to take some time to pray. During the prayer corner, I will be at the back corner of the room along with another member of our prayer team. If you feel God's spirit stirring in your heart to go to ask someone for prayer for yourself or another, please follow that prompting. 
Let's allow God's spirit to minister to us today. Let's receive his grace and mercy for the areas of shame that Jesus wants to set us free from. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much that you are here um, in this place with us. Lord, we just praise you and lift you, your name high. God, we know that uh, there's nothing that we can do that allow, would allow us to be good enough to come before you, Lord, but you have given us all that we need through Jesus Christ to be accepted as your children. Um, God, I pray for the people in this room, Lord. I know shame can be so, so hard to deal with and just so insidious in our lives, God. Um, Lord, I just pray that each person's heart would be open to seeing um, if it's shame or something else that you want us to be set free from, Lord. God, I know that you just have so much in store for us, God, as we live as your children, um, that we don't have to be weighed down by, by chains of things that are holding us back, God, but because of your grace and mercy, we have been set free. Um, Lord, I pray for anyone that is dealing with shame, Lord, that you would just bind up any lies that the enemy may be putting into their mind, God, and that you would allow your truth about who they are to sink deep into the very marrow of their bones, Lord. Um, and I pray all of this would just glorify and praise your name in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.